Welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast, the podcast where we interview Jewish philosophers and educators on topics in Jewish philosophy, theology, and Jewish thought. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit www.jewishphilosophypodcast.com for more information. Enjoy! Rabbi Goodman, welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. The title of this podcast is The Garden of Eden, The Test, and Its Implications for Humanity. So to begin, what exactly was the Garden of Eden? And what was the episode with Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve? Okay, so the Garden of Eden is literally, in Hebrew, it's Gan Eden, the garden in front of Eden. So let's try to understand, Eden is what's important, and the garden is just what's in front of it. Okay, so really, Adam was created on Erev Shabbos, on a Friday, and the idea was he would enter Aden on Shabbos in order to be able to earn the right to be able to enter Aden he had to pass a test now the reason for that test is that if he were to be given entrance rights to Aden proper not Gan Aden but Aden proper without having overcoming anything he would feel as if his entrance there would be like a charitable dole out, a gift, which would work. It's perfectly, it would work, but it wouldn't be the best form of giving. The ultimate form of giving that you could give to someone is giving them the opportunity to feel as if they've earned the outcome themselves. And that's the difference between a gift and wages. At the end of the month, when you get paid, you probably don't feel the least bit bad about getting paid. If anything, they haven't paid you enough. <laughs> like you're undervalued. You've worked really hard and you should, you should have got more. You don't say, oh no, please, it's fine. Have my wages back. Who would do such a thing? The reason for that is because you've worked for a month in order to earn as a deal that particular wage which you've negotiated with your employer. Now, if you were to have got the exact same amount of money in an envelope, in the exact same way through a PAY slip or whatever it is, however it's bankrolled with your company, and you didn't do any work and you weren't employed by them, you might feel like, well, that's very nice of them to gift me this month's worth of you know, money, but it's a gift. And if someone were to steal it, you wouldn't feel anywhere near as bad as if it was actually your hard-earned wages. God wants to give the ultimate giving possible. And therefore, the opportunity to do that must be in a way where you feel as if you must have earned it. So that you feel as if it's really yours by rights, not as if it's being given at all. It's God owes you this. And that's why the Hebrew for the word reward is not reward. It's not a gift. It's wages. God will pay you the wages he owes you. And if he doesn't, you could take him to court. And sue him. And go, look, you know, I only did this because you told me to do it. So you owe me money. And that means you really feel as if what you're going to get is really yours. For Adam to have been able to enter Aden, he has to do so on his own wage. Rather than as a doled out gift. Here's an analogy. This is my analogy. Please use it as you see fit. I've been using it for years. Most people like it. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's going to gel with you. But here's my analogy. Let's pretend 
I am a CEO of a huge multinational company and I'm looking for a new member of the executive board. And we've whittled down the candidates to top three. There's a lot of people involved. It's really a job for the boys, this. Once you're on board, Kananahar, it's a very good position to be in. But before I, as the chairman or the CEO, would allow such a person on, we have to put the person through a test of loyalty. So here's my test of loyalty. I hire an empty warehouse on the side of a motorway somewhere. Be it on the M60 or in America, whatever it is, and you know, uh, one of the interstate motorways. And I completely kit out this motorway as a casino. And I dress it up with curtains and the fittings and I've got all the tables and, I've, and I call up Casting Central and I get a whole bunch of people to be croupiers and staff and players at the casino. This casino is jacked. It's got everything you need in it. It's beautiful. It's really nicely done. You know, it's a real Las Vegas-style casino. All actors. It's not a real casino. There's no real casino license. It's not really a casino. I'm making it up. But I'm going to use this as an arena to test these final three candidates. Candidate number one is called Kevin. And Kevin turns up with his wife in an evening dress. She's in an evening dress. He's in a tuxedo, rented. Really nice, you know, proper. He's really ready to go. They walk in, the whole place is beautiful, laid out. Everything's right. There's, there's waiters walking around with trays, with sandwiches and croupiers. Be amazing. And in the car park, before he goes in, I meet with him. And I say, Kevin, and I'm going to give him a bag full of chips, full of casino chips. Kevin, I want you to take these chips. I want you to do nothing. Just go straight to the roulette table. And put all of the chips on red. So what I'm asking you. So his wife and he look at each other. It looks a very simple test. But like a shot. He takes the, the casino chips. I give it to him. I then walk off. I enter by the back door. And I go into the security room. And the security room is upstairs. And they've got like eyes in the sky. Like CCTV on every table. I'm in that room. Watching the whole thing on the screen. I disappear. All of the people in the room. Except for Kevin and Mrs. Kevin actors everybody the barman everybody so he walks in beautiful place really nicely put together loads of people hive of activity people around the blackjack people playing fruit machines uh, the automated machines people playing baccarat people playing dice snake eyes everything 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 everything. beautifully laid out all working so he says to his wife darling just hold the chips i'm going to go to the toilet going to go to the restroom Give me five minutes. I'm going to get myself together. I'll come back out. We'll take the chips and go straight to the table. Okay. So his wife, Mrs. Kevin, is standing there holding the chips. He goes into the toilet, goes into the gents. He's going to use the facilities. Just at that moment, there's a guy at the bar dressed in a white suit, slicked gel-backed hair. And he's just shaking a tumbler full of whiskey with ice in. He just leans himself off the bar and gently walks over to Mrs. Kevin. He says, hi, I see you're new here. He says, yes, 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 never been here before. And he says, I can't help notice. Could I ask you a question? I'm sorry if you don't need me to pry. 
By any chance, did Rabbi Goodman ask you to come here tonight? Yes, he did. Yes, he did, actually, by imagine. I've seen all this before so many times. You know Rabbi Goodman has a mental problem, don't you? What's that? Rabbi Goodman's terrified of anyone having more money than him. So he owns this casino and he gets people to play games and lose all their money so he doesn't feel intimidated by them. Can I ask, by any chance, has he asked you to play? Yes! Yes, in fact, look! Here are the chips! He's told me to go straight with my husband and put it all on red in the... I'm really sorry. Look, the casino is rigged that it only ever pays out on black. And he probably told you to put it on red. Yes, that's really. He wants you to lose. Look, I'm so sorry for prying. It's really not my place. But I just felt as if I had to tell someone. And he turns around and walks away. Just then Kevin comes out the toilet. Walks straight up to his wife, ready to go. His hands have just been dried on the machine. All right, let's go straight to the roulette table. Mrs. Kevin says, we need to talk. We need to talk. She tells him the whole spiel. He takes the roulette pieces, he takes the chips, and he starts moving gently over to the roulette table. He knows where it is. And all the time he's thinking, goodness gracious me, I've been such a fool, listen to that. He's obviously a nutter, and he's thinking that about left and right, but he's such a good man. I've known him for years. He's a good person. Well, it doesn't make sense. Why would she say that? Finally, he's starting to get in the way of the roulette table. The croupier, all of these people are actors. The croupier sees him in the corner of his eye. Place your bets, place your bets for the next, sir. And he points straight to Kevin. Place your bets for the next spin. And at that moment, he has a free will choice to make. Will he accept my challenge to just go straight to the roulette table and put all the money on red? Or will he listen to this hearsay from his wife via this guy at the bar that actually I'm nuts and I've got some kind of mental attribute that likes watching people lose money and that's really what's going on. He's just a pawn in this whole thing and I really couldn't care less. And he's standing there and he's thinking, should I put it on red? Should I put it on black? I really wouldn't mind winning tonight. It'd be quite fun to win. Maybe I should put it on black. Maybe I should put it on red because I know that's what Rabbi Goodman wants from me. And he puts all the money on black. All the money goes on black. Okay, fine. Nobody bats an eyelid. Of course, all the actors know exactly what's going on. So the croupier spins the, 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 the ball, goes round, and the ball jumps over the little bits in the... In the, in the and it lands on red. A red number. Kevin is mortified. He looks at his wife with a scorn. Just then, there's a tanner announcement. Kevin to the car park. Kevin to the car park. Kevin and Mrs. Kevin to the car park, please. Out they come to the car park. And I'm there, back in the car park. I've watched the whole thing on the security. I'm in the car park, leaning up against the bonnet the hood of a vehicle. They come out and I just scream, ah, Kevin, how are you? Sheepishly says, hello there. So Kevin, how did it go? Um, well, not so great. What happened, Kevin? Uh, um, I lost everything. It's okay, you didn't have to win. You know, I didn't ask you to win. 
um, did you put all the money on red? Uh, no, actually, I didn't. I didn't. Why on earth would you do that, Kevin? Well, actually, my wife told me that y you have a mental aberration and this whole thing's a farce and you like to watch people lose. So I looked to Mrs. Kevin. I said, is that what you told him? And she said, well, a guy at the bar came and told me all this. And I thought it very strange. Like, why are we here anyway? End of analogy. That analogy is very carefully crafted to mimic exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Essentially, what's key in the Garden of Eden for Adam to enter Aden proper is he has to comply with a directive, only one, and that's not to eat of the Eitadas Tevara, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If he would have complied with that directive, he would have been able to enter Aden, which is a zone of closeness to Hashem. As it is, he's just outside there and needs to swipe his card into the lock to gain access. He swiped his card, red light comes up. Unfortunately, you're not fitting to enter Aden because you could not comply with the directive and therefore the giving is not justified. You have not done anything to earn your wage. You haven't done your job. As such, the Gemara Sanhedrin explains that there's a 6,000 year detour that needs to be made by humanity in order to be able to reachieve that authenticated wage to be able to enter Aden. Had he have achieved it, he would have entered there and then alive without having to go through the death process. As it was, he was banished from the Garden of Eden and he entered a lower zone outside an actual physical enclave of the Garden of Eden. He had to roam outside of that and there's no point going back because the only reason it was there was only to last one day, one 24-hour period. It just needed to exist to present a challenge to Adam and Rishon, one that he would either comply with and raise to, or one that he would welch on, he'd fail, not comply with. Either which way, by the end of the day, either he enters Aden or he leaves Gun Aden. He's not staying in Gun Aden, whatever happens, by the end of that 24-hour period. It turns out that he only had three hours left before Shabbos came in. Hence the Jewish concept of waiting three years before we eat the produce of a tree known as Orla in order to atone for his three hours of impatience. We do not eat fruit from a new tree until its fourth or fifth year, actually, of budding because we have to wait those three seasons because he can wait three hours. I can just ask you on that final point. Why was there a need um to go through this 6,000 years of history, etc., when um, God, Hashem, could have very just, very easily just sort of said to us, here, I'll give you another chance. Um, in your analogy, why couldn't you have just said to, to Kevin, you know, have another go? Why does there need to be such a, a long detour from the original um, purpose of putting us, Adam and, and um, Kevin, as it were, in, 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 in the world in the first place? So to go through the analogy again, think about it. Let's say you were Kevin and I had just seen you fail. Would Kevin saying, well, just give me more chips, I'll go back and do it now, be sufficient? There's no point me giving you another bag of chips and asking you to go back in because you failed. 
you now need an entirely different test to earn your loyalty. You're on a much lower level now because now I actually see you as untrustworthy. It needs a bit of explanation why God, why Hashem couldn't have just said, well, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve have failed, so I'll get a different couple, I'll get a different pair. When your example, Kevin and his wife, you know, they lost the job, but I'll get a different pair. Why do we need to rectify their problem? That's what's bothering me at the moment. Excellent. Excellent question. The answer is as follows. God wants Adam stroke Kevin in the analogy to prove themselves, but it depends under what circumstances they'll do it. Essentially, what happened with Adam was that he wanted to do the right thing in his mind to appease the creator. But the snake stroke, the smarmy guy who approaches Mrs. Kevin, essentially confused them of what really God's will is meant to do. Really, it was meant to be a test of loyalty. But in the end, the snake made it a mental game of trickery as to whether or not I've got a mental disease or something. So too, the snake misrepresented God by saying, if you eat of the tree of fruit of knowledge of good and bad, you will become like God knowing good and bad. God doesn't know good and bad. Good and bad are human goalposts. What was good for you when you were six, when you were 16, when you're 26, when you're 36, when you're 46, 56, are very different. God knows truth and falsehood. He is absolute. So either it's true or it isn't. The snake misrepresented God, saying God is on a lower level of understanding. And if you would just take this material, you would enter this realm of godliness. So essentially they took it because they wanted to get closer to God, but God was misrepresented. That's why the snake is punishable for what he said. His job was to get them not to comply, but not to lie about the truth of what God is and isn't. And therefore, because of that, what they did was in a way yearning to get close to God, but all in the wrong way. Now that they've eaten of this material and they've taken evil within themselves, which it was external prior to that, the external evil was the lush and horror of the snake and the external good was the lush and tithe, was the good speech of Hashem. Now what they've got, the lush and horror being slander, there was nothing was good or evil at all except for those two things, good speech and bad speech. Essentially, the snake was a drug dealer. And he peddled a substance which they abused, thinking it would give them a trip which would be beneficial. And it wasn't. It wasn't. However, all, all is not lost. Yes, Adam himself and Eve cannot enter Aden proper. That's true. However, they will be able to have descendants who will be able to rectify the damage they have done and enter. So even though they have, as it were, shot their bolt, they've given it a go and it failed, the human species as a whole has not been utterly ruined because the manner in which they failed wasn't altogether terrible. It was essentially a yearning or an aspiration to become godlike, but just misguided. Therefore, it wasn't as if they rebelled deeply and threw the challenge back at God, saying, we couldn't care less about you, take a long walk off a short pier, we're not even playing, I'm not going into the casino, I don't like you, I don't want you, in which case there'd be far more justification for wiping out that species and creating another and saying, well, let's try with another, as it were. That's not the case with Adam and Eve. God says, you're from dust to dust, you'll return. 
Now that you've done this, you'll require the death process to be able to cleanse you of the damage done both internally and externally. But I'm not giving up on humanity. The way that you have responded has got seeds of promise in, and it's with those that we must work to yield a better result. So could you just expand on that point a bit? How exactly did they show seeds of promise by disobeying God's command? As I said, the way that they ignored God's command did show a yearning to reach God. They wanted to be like God, knowing good and bad, which is false, because he doesn't. But that's why they did it. The snake specifically said, the reason why you should eat this is because you'll appreciate God better. Now, at the end of the day, that's false and eating it is poisonous. God has said, if you eat of it before they even ate of it, he said, I'm telling you that you're immortal. You have no death date. However, if you eat of it, I'm telling you, you will die. So you've got the most to lose by eating it. And they were aware of that. If you're immortal, the greatest thing you could lose is immortality. So it was the ultimate gamble. However, they gambled on it because they genuinely wanted a closer spiritual experience, a physical and spiritual experience closer to God. They wanted to understand and be closer to him. However, they should have listened to the original direct di directive, which was to refrain and that they couldn't do. So notice there was an issue of substance abuse. There was an issue of slander. And there was an issue of dietary laws. There was essentially a material which was non-kosher. They had to avoid something that was non-kosher. They had to avoid slander. And they had to comply with the correct directives. And avoid taking drugs to get to a higher state of consciousness. And all those things are things which are very potent in all communities at all times through human history. There's always things about forbidden and permitted foods with being Jewish. There's always an issue about slander and accepting it, which is a very common problem. And there's always an issue about substance abuse, be it alcohol, drugs, whatever it will be. Those are always part and parcel of the human consciousness. And that's because that was the test on the first day. It was a, uh, a, uh, an amalgamation of all those issues of Lashon Hara, Kashrus, substance abuse, were all being melded into one and essentially acting as a great challenge for humanity where humanity is particularly weak, as we see from that. We are also plagued by these same problems in all cultures across humanity. They've always got problems with slandering each other, with substance abuse, with correctly going along with legal directives, um, eating habits, very significant. Gentiles also have eating habits they must also concur with. The laws, the seven universal laws include elements of kashras as well. And in the last chapter of uh, Isaiah 66, he actually talks about even Gentiles have a thing not to eat rodents and lizards and things like that. And of course not for Jews who have even more restrictive levels of dietary restriction. So just for the final question, if you could expand a bit on the implications um, for humanity of the failure of Adam and Chava, of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve um, when they failed their test, what implications does that have for us? Right. Well, our sources explain that actually our work is now doubled. We have a double workload. The way to re you see, if someone makes a mistake like Kevin in the analogy with the casino, I would say Kevin's in a worse position than someone that's not even gone into the casino to start with. If the next guy's Robert, 
<laughs> and Robert and his wife are the next up. I would say Robert and his wife are in a better position than Kevin and Mrs. Kevin, who have proven their disloyalty. Robert and Mrs. Robert, they're up for grabs. We don't know where they're holding yet. Adam in the Garden of Eden, prior to the sin, was in a better state than us now, even though he hadn't achieved anything. The reason is like this. Let me explain. When he was in the Garden of Eden, God pointed out which tree was to be avoided. He told his wife, and they both definitely knew which tree it was. There was no ambiguity about which tree it was. It wasn't as if God left a riddle. A tree is one. One of them there is. One of them you must not eat. Do not eat the one with a tree that is in the middle. And then they like have to spend like an hour and a half trying to unravel that riddle. That would be horrendous. Now, no wonder they would make a mistake. God said, look, you see that tree over there? Yes, that's the one I want you to leave. It's clear as day. I want you to put all the chips on red. You know what red is. You know what black is. I know you're not colorblind. You have the ability to differentiate between it. I'm telling you what to do. Now go do it. All his test was, was essentially, should he accept the good speech of God or the bad speech of the snake through his wife? That's, that's his challenge. Accept what he knows to be true. Rabbi Goodman is telling him, put all his chips on red. Avoid the lie that Rabbi Goodman is a megalomaniac and cannot see anyone. You know, that's the story. Again, of course, that smarmy guy was an actor from Casting Central who I hired to get the job done. In fact, he's probably the most important person in the room next to Kevin. Isn't he? I need him to initiate the test. The test is purely loyalty, obedience. He made it more complicated by making it a more complicated mind game. Now that we have failed, we're in post-failure scenario, we've got, a more complicated, we've got a more complicated system. Number one, we don't know what's right and wrong exactly. And number two, once we have ascertained what's right and wrong, we still have the same challenge that Adam had to comply. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say there's a pot which is on a stove which is cooking meat and some milk splashes on the side of the pot. Some of the milk splashes above the food line. Some of the milk splashes below the food line. This is a complicated area now when it's hot to ascertain whether or not the absorption of the milk travels through the hot metal into the food and if so by how much and does it render the food inside the pot prohibited? What about the pot itself? Maybe the food's okay, maybe the pot isn't. We don't know, we have to ascertain the truth of that. So all we now have, we turn off the stove, we take the pot off, we let it cool down, and we speak to a rov. We call someone who is conversant with Jewish law. And we say, what is the status of the food? What is the status of the pot? Meat and milk is forbidden to be mixed in Jewish law, even through this pot barrier. And therefore, what is the status of the food? What is the status of the pot? Do I need, can I use the food? What about the pot? Can I just reuse the pot as it is? Or do I need to uh, put the pot through an ablution process? What do I have to do? So the rub will have to ascertain how much milk hit the pot, where it hit it, where the food line is. If the majority is opposite the food line or above the food line. If it's above the food line, did you pour the food out? over the milk or not over the milk? Did it catch any more of the milk? How much is the volume inside the pot? What's the volume of milk or cheese that's hit the side of the pot? Once the Rov has ascertained the truth, let's say he says, 
The food is okay, but the pot is rendered non-kosher and must be purged by being boiled in a bigger pot. Let's say he says that to you. Right, now you know the truth. You can use the food, you can't use the pot. So the pot is in your house. Now you're not allowed, according to Jewish law, to keep a non-kosher utensil in your house. Heaven forbid you might forget about it and then use it and the food cooked in it could be a problem. So now you've got this whole tray. Where am I going to be a bigger pot? And I've got to boil up water until a rolling boil and dip that pot in it. Who could be bothered? That's Adam's test. Now that you know the truth, you've still got to comply. But half of the work for us is even finding out what the truth is. So first of all, we've got, we've got two steps to overcome now. One is we've got to ascertain what the correct path of action is. And then we've got to be able to comply with the correct path of action. So putting these two things together is double the workload. Adam didn't have to find out which tree it was. He knew which tree it was. His only test was compliance. We have two tests. One is ascertaining the test. What is the exact scenario? And once you've ascertained that, then you've got the same compliance test that Adam had originally. So he has effectively doubled human workload. If a Gentile wants to know how to get close to God, the first thing they're going to have to know is what are the seven archive laws? If a Jew wants to get close to God, what are the Tariag mitzvahs? What are these commandments that I have to... What are they? I don't even know them. Once you learn them, you'll find a lot of your time learning them is applying them to actual case scenarios where you understand how they work. Then you've got the challenge, will you actually do it? So Adam has effectively doubled humanity's workload in a post-sin scenario because the occlusion of his consciousness, which was a natural outcome from the sin, has now been inherited by his descendants. So first of all, we have to unocclude our consciousness and then we have to comply with directives. He didn't have to unocclude his consciousness. He just has to comply with directives. So we are left in a far tougher position than someone who has never taken the test at all. Thank you, Rabbi Goodman, for that. That was fascinating. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm glad. Thank you very, very much for inviting me to, uh, to speak with you again. Thank you for listening to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit us on Twitter for updates on every episode. Thank you.